if you're one of God's people among us today, I think you can sing that song and testify that God's grace really does permeate your life from beginning to end. It is our desire today, if you're with us, that that could be your testimony, what we sang in the chorus. Jesus died for sinful men, and that you could say, Jesus died for me. Now, that's what we want uh, each person to know when they come to be with us, uh, that Christ died for you, and you can come to him, turn from your sin, and believe in him today. Uh, we're grateful to have John Davis and Rachel and two of his kids with us today, and it's my privilege to introduce him to you today. Um, I've known John for a long time. We uh, grew up going to the same school and church up in Menor. That's where John and his family live now, and they uh, minister there at Bible Community Church that we pray for in our bulletin among our sister churches. Um, I don't have many uh, anecdotes that I will share right now um, to introduce John, but I am grateful. Many of you know him from he and Rachel's time here in their family uh, as he served as a deacon for many years. Now John is serving as, as an elder of a Bible community and teaching a good bit and uh, really helping uh, helping that church up there. And I'm thankful for that. That's where my parents are, are still, and that's where my family is. John is even now ministering, uh, being a blessing to me. Uh, John and Rachel are years ahead of me. So what all I will say is um, I'm thankful for uh, John's marrying my sister. Rachel is my sister, so he's my brother-in-law. But uh, even being an example to me as I've had an opportunity to watch their family life and their marriage, I've learned a great deal. And uh, I warmly commend him to you. And John, we'll turn the rest of the time over to you. Thanks for being here. And I trust uh, it'll be a blessing to all of us today. Thank you for the introduction. Wasn't quite sure what anecdotes he was going to go with. So glad for what you uh, did and didn't say. Uh, it is good to see you all this morning. Good to be back. Uh, I was thinking it's actually been, I believe, eight years since we moved up to Menor. Uh, we had lived here for uh, six years, Kent Road, and uh, gone here for six years. And it's been eight years now uh, that we've been gone, and we're very glad to be back this morning. Uh, thank you to Pastor Joel and to uh, Pastor McLean for the opportunity to be able to preach. I am uh, thankful for that. Uh, if you would take your Bibles, please go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes uh, 8 through 14. Uh, my oldest son, uh, Nathaniel, who is 15 now, um, so when we left here, he would have been seven, but he is 15 now and rapidly counting down the days till 15 and a half. Very legalistic, law-like about that, because of course something good happens at that point. Well, it's good for him. Not sure yet if it's going to be good for me and Rachel, but uh, he does say hello. Uh, he was planning to be here and then had an event come up last minute. Uh, we do still continue to blame Fallsbury and Bible Church and Nathaniel's uh, Sunday school teacher for his love of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, we don't know quite what kind of indoctrination was going on in the class, <clears throat> but one thing we do know he got out of the class is a love for the Steelers from, from Kathy Ettinger. So we're glad he's not here to cheer for them or they're not here to be able to, you know, get together and be all Steeler buddy, buddy. But anyway, he says hello and wishes, wishes he could have been here. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, you do tell us in your word uh, that your word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and that through your word, you make us mature and equipped for every good work. I ask that that would be true this morning. Uh, please open our eyes to what you have for us in your word. Uh, please uh, help us to have uh, eyes that see and um, minds that remember, ears that hear. May we please leave as obedient doers and not forgetful hearers. And God, I recognize that that's something we can't uh, stir up on our own. Uh, that comes from you. And so I ask that you would please enable that in our midst this morning, in our lives throughout this week. Help us to understand what your word has for us this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray and ask these things. Amen. 
Uh, at some point in the in the last year, we were at a family function together, and Pastor McLean and I were sitting there talking, and uh, we ended up talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. Over the last couple of years, as I've had opportunity to, uh, to, to preach up at Bible Community, uh, generally there's gaps between when I get to preach and every time I come back and preach, it's always through the book of Ecclesiastes. I've been working my way through it, and Lord willing, next Sunday actually will be my last sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes. At, at Bible community. But we were talking at this at the family function. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but he mentioned that he was taking a class on uh, wisdom literature, wisdom books, of which Ecclesiastes falls into. And we got to talking about all of the different uh, variety of interpretations of the book of Ecclesiastes and all of the difficult sayings that it has. Well, not all, but some of them. And um, just the, the, the good things that are there to find, but also the difficulties in studying the book. I know that his uh, studies in the class there led him to uh, preach a sermon last uh, this past spring on the book of Ecclesiastes. And he started off in Ecclesiastes 12 also. Um, so some of what I have to say today will probably sound a little, a little redundant. Um, Forgive me for that, but I know he went beyond and, and, some, and, and preached a message on the whole book. My plan here is to stay in verses 8 through 14 and see what, what God would have us for us here in this book. And also, I was glad as I listened to that sermon that as we had talked about the wide variety of uh, interpretations of the book, that there weren't really all that many places that we differed. So uh, hopefully in looking at verses 8 through 14 today, we'll really be building on uh, the foundation that he laid with the book back in the spring and um, seeing what God has for us there. But the, the line of thought that I wanted to think about in terms of, of getting started is, have you ever considered two things that don't really seem to go together, but then when you put them together, something very good comes out? Uh, two things that don't go together, but when you put them together and you put them together in the right way, something good comes out. Uh, if you're a, a baker or someone who likes to cook, there may have at one point been a recipe that you came across that included two things and you thought, there's no way that something good will come of putting these two things together. But you follow the recipe, you do it in the right way, and something good comes out of it. Uh, a couple years ago now at, at our church, we had a chili cook-off uh, for the men. And as I was looking for a recipe to, because uh, I wouldn't be able to do it from scratch. But as I was looking for a recipe to follow, I found one that included uh, cocoa powder. Uh, so I thought, hey, I might as well try that. Um, turned out pretty good. Uh, the other good thing is that there were no beans in it. Any chili with beans, of course, would rank down there. So it had cocoa powder. It didn't have beans and it, and it tasted pretty good. Uh, along the same lines, uh, there is someone here today who several years ago introduced me to the idea of chocolate covered bacon. Don't know if you've ever considered the concept of chocolate covered bacon. Um, but I can, and I can testify that if there was one food that I had to live on for the rest of my life, it would be chocolate-covered bacon. Because uh, if you think about it, you've got your beans, your, your chocolate beans are in there, so you're getting your vegetables, but you're also getting all that other stuff that's good and can keep you living for a little while. Um, maybe not in the way you're intended to live, but, but it'll keep you going. All right, so maybe you've noticed a theme here. I like just about anything that can go along with chocolate. And even if it sounds like it might not mix very well, I'm willing to try it. But to rather abruptly transition from the ridiculous to the religious, um, there are things in the Bible that at times we read them and it doesn't seem like they're like these two things go together. There are concepts that we're told both are true, but we don't know quite how um, it works out that they go together. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the things that, that we learn about God from the Bible is that he is uh, referred to as transcendent. He is uh, marvelous, magnificent, above everything. And, and so he is, he is supreme. He is, he is Lord over everything. But then at the same time, we're taught that he's imminent, that he's close. Even as uh, Pastor McLean prayed this morning, he's our, he's our father. How can it be true that someone who is transcendent and above everything is also imminent or close to us? But yet we find examples in the Bible of both of those truths. So we can't deny either one or we can't you know, teach one to the exclusion of the other. That's an example of a biblical concept of things that may not seem to go together or we don't quite understand how they mix. Um, 
Along those same lines would be the idea of uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Again, there are passages in scripture that very clearly teach God's sovereignty and control over everything, but then there are passages that teach human responsibility, how it is that we're supposed to, how it is that we're supposed to reply and respond to God's sovereignty. Uh, Philippians 2 is one such passage where we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so am I working for my salvation? Well, no, the passage goes on to say it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so two things that might not seem to go together at first, when they're put together in the right place, in the right way, we find out that something good comes out of it. This morning, those two things that I want to look at are fear and joy. Fear and joy. And we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 12, verses 8 through 14, to see how these two things that might not seem to go together how it is that they can and we're going to see that actually the fear of god produces true joy the fear of god produces true joy let's look at ecclesiastes uh, 12 and we'll start in verse 8 uh, vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity in addition to being a wise man the preacher also taught the people knowledge he pondered searched out arranged many proverbs the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads and like masters of these and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion when all has been heard is Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So as I mentioned before, Ecclesiastes is a book that has a broad range of interpretations. If you have a study Bible with you on your lap, it might have a, a, a different view of Ecclesiastes than another study Bible that someone has here. One of the reasons that uh, uh, the, the, the reasons for these differences, though, are, are rather understandable. It's a book that was written roughly 3,000 years ago uh, in, a, in a language that we don't speak to a group of people that, that, you know, we're not living with them as they would have received this book. And it was written in a, in a, a style of, of wisdom literature. Uh, the, the wise men of the Old Testament were men who were gifted by God to be able to take God's word and skillfully apply it to the everyday life of the believer. And, and Solomon, who I believe is the author of Ecclesiastes, does that with this book, but he doesn't just come out and say what it is that he's trying to say. You know, we're, we're kind of familiar with how Paul structures his letters in the New Testament. Generally speaking, there's an introduction, who he's writing to, uh, why he's writing. He goes through the main body of his letter, it's, and it's not that the things that he's talking about are easy to understand or easy to do, but generally we get a sense of the structure of the letter. He then comes to his conclusion. Uh, Solomon, as he structured uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chose not to do it that way. Uh, one author has likened the book of Ecclesiastes instead of like a, a letter from Paul, more to like a uh, broken record. Uh, what happens when a needle on a on a record uh, gets scratched, or what happens when a record gets scratched? You know, the needle keeps popping back and forth to the same thing. And sometimes, if you were to sit down and read the book from beginning to end, you would see that he kind of comes back to the same thing over and over and over again. And he's trying to get us to to consider these different areas of life to come out to a right conclusion on those areas and not fall into a, a wrong conclusion. But he doesn't just come out and do it. He wants to take us on a path uh, through this book uh, to be able to see um, what life looks like when someone lives within the fear of God. Uh, so we're here at the end of the book uh, because, uh, well, ultimately it would take too long to read through the entire thing, but it is here in the end that Solomon takes everything that he said and he boils it down into to three memorable sayings. Obviously, there's more than three words, three sayings in verses eight through 14, but they can be summarized in three sayings. And when we look at those three sayings, uh, we see that Solomon's purpose will be to turn our minds toward God as the true source of true joy. Ecclesiastes has been referred to some as the Old Testament ode to joy and old, the Old Testament um, treatment on uh, what joy looks like in a believer's life. When we look at the New Testament, uh, the book of Philippians is called that, uh, and a, a, a 
a, a testament to joy in the New Testament. You can read Philippians and see what God has to say about joy. But when we go to Ecclesiastes several times um, throughout the book, Solomon brings us back to the concept of joy and what joy looks like in the life of a believer in the midst of a fallen and sinful world. And we see when, and we see when we get to verse 14, that it is the fear of God, what, what the fear of God is that helps us to have that concept of what true joy is. Uh, Philippians is not the only place in the New Testament that talks about joy in the life of a believer. Uh, you may remember at the beginning of James, uh, James chapter one, James says, count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We're to let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But because we can't quite understand what's going on through that testing of our faith, James says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so the way Ecclesiastes combines these two ideas, which at times might seem more like ends of a magnet that you can't just get that you can't get to just stick together. Uh, one uh, pastor, Pastor Owen, actually says that joy is discovered when life is lived in light of the God who's there. Joy is discovered when life is lived in light of the God who's there. And so let's look at uh, verse eight first to see uh, the first of these ways that Solomon will get uh, will help us look at life in such a way that we can understand what the fear of God is and how joy comes out of that. And we look at when we look at verse eight, uh, the first thing uh, to remember that uh, I've summarized it by saying life is a difficult puzzle. Life is a difficult puzzle. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher all is vanity. The theme of the whole book of Ecclesiastes is found here in verse 8. Uh, Solomon has said the same thing back in, in chapter 1. Uh, as uh, Pastor McLean had said, they are like two bookends to the book. They are his theme to the book. The reason this is his theme to the book, though, is because he set out to answer a question. The question that he set out to answer is found in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, what advantage does man have in all of the work which he does under the sun? What advantage does man have in all the work which he does under the sun? And the word advantage there means profit or benefit or gain. So what, what profit, what benefit, what, what advantage is there? What can be gained by going through this life? And now some will take that question and, and say that there is an applied answer of nothing that this life is basically worthless, that it's, that it's meaningless. And some have taken that, that translation in, in reference to the book of Ecclesiastes. But I, I don't think that that's what uh, Solomon's doing. I think when I, when I look at that word vanity, that the picture that I have come to understand that Solomon is getting to think about, us to think about, when he uses that word vanity, is, is more of the fact that life is a puzzle. Um, I don't know if you guys like um, jigsaw puzzles, I'm not a huge fan of jigsaw puzzles. You know, the, the 500 piecers, the 1,000 piecers, the 2,000 piecers, um, I will generally just walk by them. Um, if I see a four-piecer, you know, like there might be one down in the nursery now, I, th those I can do, all right? They're all corners. They're not hard to figure out. But, you know, life can be a puzzle. Uh, jigsaw puzzles can be a puzzle. And at times you might get done with a 2,000-piece puzzle and you're missing one or two pieces. That would be a little frustrating. So why even start? Um, one of the puzzles, one of the kind of puzzles that I do like though are, are Legos. I don't know if you like putting Legos together. I, I still do. Um, not sure what age that makes me. Um, but you know, sometimes with Legos, you've got the steps that you gotta follow and you get to maybe step 23. You find the right part and you realize there's not enough room on whatever it is that you're building to, to that part and you realize that you know 10 steps ago you put this part in the wrong place so you got to take it all apart you got to build it back together that can be a little frustrating this word vanity here um, I have found a helpful way to describe it as the fact that life is a difficult and sometimes frustrating puzzle you know uh, all of us at times have gone through difficulties trials as as james says those things that that work to strengthen us, uh, us in our faith but when we are in the middle of them and we can't see the end of them we are left to question what's going on when is you know when when is this going to end what's the goal in all of this what's the point why me 
Um, that is the idea that's behind the use of this word vanity. Uh, the reason most of our English translations use the word vanity is because when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Latin, the Latin word that was used that was vanitas. And so it has come to us in our English translations as vanity. And vanity, the, the Hebrew word that's translated vanity has a wide range of, of um, words that can be used to, to translate it, just like, you know, vanity does. Vanity at times can mean conceit, uh, can mean uh, someone who is proud, someone who is, is wrapped up in themselves, but it also can mean something that is empty or void of anything meaningless. And that's probably why vanity is used because the Hebrew word has that kind of idea to go along with it also. But wrapped up in that word, that Hebrew word are meanings that are not just purely negative. Uh, it literally means breath or vapor, something that uh, appears for a moment and passes away as James says about all of our lives. Uh, in Psalm 144, the psalmist uses that word in that way uh, when he says, O oh Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And so you can see there with the usage of that word in that, in that passage that he's simply talking about a, a, a short amount of time, something that isn't here for a long time. So that something that passes quickly isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that doesn't last a long time. And so when we look at this word vanity, we don't have to necessarily go to the negative interpretations of the word, like meaningless or, or empty, um, but it does bring along the idea of frustrating or difficult. And, light, and Solomon, all throughout the book, will um, in very specific ways talk about the difficult life that he has observed both in the people that he has been charged to uh, lead and be king over and in, and in his life himself. And so the book is full of these um, phrases and descriptions of people where we can see that life is a difficult puzzle for them. Um, but in the midst of all that, one of the words that he also brings us back to like a broken record is joy. Uh, and, and he's using that word. And so he's using these words together to refer to the fact that, yes, life is puzzling. It is incomprehensible. We are um, frustrated in our ability to fully comprehend what's going on here on the earth where we live. And so ultimately what Solomon is, is doing is confronting us with our limitations. He is someone who in his life had to get to the point where he had to reckon with his limitations. And that is where everyone in human life has to get to. We have to consider our, our limitations. But in getting us there, Solomon's goal is not to discourage us or to turn us away from God. Rather, all throughout the book, he declares the power and the wisdom of God that would make us depend on him instead of our own recollections, our own considerings of life. Now, sometimes it is our own sin that causes these frustrations in life. Uh, and Solomon was a, as we all are, was a perfect example of that. Uh, if you think about his life, he was the first in line after King David. King David was the, you know, the man after God's own heart, uh, the man that God promised to, um, you know, fulfill a promise to always have someone sitting on that Davidic throne. Uh, Solomon was the next in line. Uh, under Solomon's reign over Israel, Israel grew to its, its largest uh, and most powerful uh, capacity. Uh, under Solomon, Solomon was able to build the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. Uh, he constructed palaces and cities across the whole kingdom. He was so wealthy uh, that the plates and silverware that he owned were not actually silverware, they were gold. Uh, he ate off of gold plates using gold utensils. His throne was, was covered in gold. Uh, God had visited him at the beginning of his reign, had offered him anything that he wanted, and Solomon asked for wisdom. God gave him that wisdom, and he is known as, as the, you know, the wisest man who has ever lived, but God also said, I'm going to bless you with great material blessings, and he did that. But later on in his life, Solomon was again visited by God, and this time he was told that after his death, his kingdom would be divided and taken from his son. And the thing that had happened in between those two visitations from God is that Solomon had turned away from God. 
he ultimately he had broken God's law, um, you know, uh, in, in from the book of Genesis regarding marriage. And instead of one wife, uh, you may remember he had taken 700 wives, 300 concubines. And those women he had taken from foreign lands, all with foreign gods. And he had allowed them to turn his heart away from the one true God. And so because he had turned his back on God, God said the kingdom would be torn away, uh, would be torn away from his son. And so sometimes it is our own sin that causes these frustrations in life. But even in our own sin, we're not left just to wallow in that sin. Joy is still possible. But also in the book, we see that it's sometimes the sin and thoughtlessness of others uh, that cause uh, that causes life to be a frustrating puzzle. Uh, throughout the book, Solomon refers to unrighteous people who unfairly get what a righteous person deserves. An unrighteous person who shouldn't have a long life because of all the wickedness that they, are, that they have done gets to live longer than a righteous person who has done much good in this, uh, in this world. And so sometimes it's that sin and thoughtlessness of others that bring us to this point of looking at life as a frustrating puzzle. But again, he doesn't just leave it there. But then there are other places in the book also where there are no apparent cause for the things that cause frustrations in life, other than the fact that we live in a sinful and fallen world. Uh, we can be working, we can be doing the thing that we're supposed to be doing, and something breaks or falls that we weren't expecting, and we are, we are uh, painfully affected by it. Uh, in chapter 10, Solomon illustrates this uh, in, in three ways, looking at a worker, one who's, who's knocking down a wall, maybe to, to rearrange uh, how a house is laid out or to extend a house and he doesn't know a snake is on the other side. He knocks down the wall and the snake jumps through and bites him. All right. He, he didn't, he wasn't doing anything wrong. It's just because he's limited. He didn't know the snake was there. Uh, he also talks about a worker who's digging a hole, doing what he's supposed to do. Maybe a foundation for, for a new house turns around, forgets, and he ends up falling into that hole and hurting himself. Again, something he wasn't expecting, but it can cause life to be a difficult puzzle. And then he also talks about someone who's quarrying stones. And as he quarries those stones and digs the stones out, um, uh, he gets hurt by them. He couldn't see that it was coming. He was limited as he was doing what it was that he was supposed to be doing. How is it that in this life that is at times a difficult puzzle that we can have true joy? It's through uh, a proper understanding of of what the fear of God is. Uh, Solomon tells us that he sets out on a, on, a, on a very real search to see what life is, is like all about him. He searched out all things under the sun. He didn't stay closed up in one of his majestic palaces. He, he knew he could see everything that was going on around him. And he puts it all together and wants to bring us along so that we don't stay in those places of Life is a difficult puzzle, but we move to the place of fearing God and experiencing the joy that we all would like to experience. When we look at the difficulties around us, then ultimately we have two options. Um, you know, we can look to ourselves and how it is that we can manage to get ourselves out of those situations. Or as Hebrews 12 says, uh, we can look to Jesus and Hebrews 12 helps us understand what that means what that phrase means when it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, there's our word again, that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Life can at times make us grow weary and faint-hearted. But the example of Christ dying on the cross for our sins is the, is, is the example we look to uh, as the one who did it before us, the one who did it for us. And when we trust in him, we are able to have that, that which is promised through his word. First Corinthians 1 says that in, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so when we focus on Christ, we will be able to understand the fear of God and be able to understand what true joy is. So the first thing Solomon turns our attention 
attention to is the fact that life is a puzzle and at times it is a frustrating and difficult puzzle. The second thing he turns our minds to is in verses 9 through 12, and he shows us that we have not been left on our own. We haven't been left on our own in this life that is a puzzle, uh, verses 9 through 12. Uh, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. He pondered, he searched out, he arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, like masters of these collections are, are masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. We haven't been left on our own. Solomon assures us we don't have to navigate life without some sort of map. We don't have to try to put those Legos together uh, without the book. We don't have to do the jigsaw puzzle without the picture on the front of the box that tells us where, where all the pieces we go, uh, where all the pieces go. Solomon is directing our gaze back to God by directing us to the place where we can find out about him. Um, notice the word shepherd in verse, in verse 11. They are given by one shepherd. And I, I do believe that this is a reference to God himself. Uh, now, I, I didn't know uh, what uh, Pastor McLean would be talking about in our Christian Life Hour this morning, but it was John 10 and the fact that, John, uh, that, that Jesus was the good shepherd. God himself calls himself, the, uh, the, God is called the, the good shepherd. And where would Solomon have heard about that? Growing up, he would have heard that from his father, David. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Solomon recognized that his father had left him words that would guide him through life. And ultimately, those words came from the one shepherd, the good shepherd, God himself. Uh, in Psalm 80, uh, we're we're reminded of this also, where it says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon cherubim, shine forth. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. So Solomon knew that God was a provider, the provider, the protector, the deliverer for all of his people. So this morning, when we looked at John 10, you know, it's no accident that Jesus also likened himself to that shepherd. When he said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, Jesus, as the good shepherd, has paid the price for our sins that we could never pay on our own. Uh, Peter, an apostle who would have uh, a disciple who would have heard Jesus say that picks up on that theme in his first letter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so Solomon directs us back to that, which helps us to understand that we haven't been left on our own. And that's the words of God himself. I noticed on the, uh, the back of the bulletin there that uh, the, the quote from William Plummer uh, that, that's there says, he who would be truly blessed must become a student of scripture. There is no substitute for this. God's word is able to make men wise unto salvation. It's quick and powerful. And I, I thought that quote was very good to go along with this point in the sermon, that God hasn't left us on our own in the midst of this life that is at times a, a difficult puzzle. Um, notice in verse, uh, verse 9 that Solomon points out what kind of a task this was for him. He pondered, he searched out, he arranged many proverbs. This was something that he was deeply and personally involved in. We're told that he built buildings, he built gardens. He wasn't a, you know, a, a lazy monarch who just relied on his servants to kind of take care of him. This was something that he was personally involved in, and he weighed, he studied, he arranged, he taught them himself. He understood what the people were going through and what life was like for the people that he governed. 
So this, this really is a practical book, even as we read through Proverbs for our pastoral scripture reading this morning. Uh, Proverbs written by Solomon as wise words to people to be able to apply to life. Ecclesiastes also is a practical book in that it accurately reflects life even these thousands of years later. And he was able to, Solomon, that is, was able to put these words together in a way that, that he calls delightful. They're memorable. They stick in our minds. Uh, there's a, a poem at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 12 about, about growing old. And age is, is likened to a house that starts to fall apart, a city that at one time was, you know, working really well and everything was clicking. But then things start to break, break apart, fall apart, break down. Just a memorable way to think about age. Uh, he put these memorable words in there to get us to think about the life that we are living in and what it looks like to fear God and have joy as, as a result. But without going to God's word, that, that'll never happen. Again, something that, that Solomon would have heard David say is in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, God's word is the only sure place that we will find a revelation of God himself. We can see his power as we look around at creation. Uh, we know that he is the one governing even the changes of seasons as we see summer switches over to fall, but it's only in the word of God that, we'll, that, that we will find out about God and his message of the gospel through the person of Jesus Christ that we can come to him through faith in Christ. But another of those memorable words that Solomon uses that I've been referring to is the word joy. Now, it's, it's not here in this section, but seven times throughout the book, Solomon takes us back to this word joy. He actually uses it at the end of 11 to finish off the section that he was talking about in chapter 11. And it's one of those things that he brings us back to, to show us that joy and the life that we live are very much possible. But when we think about joy, it is important to, to think about what Solomon might be meaning when he uses the word joy. Sometimes when we hear the word joy, we might think the word happiness. And joy and happiness are not necessarily the same thing. They can at times go together, but sometimes they don't. Happiness is passing. It's temporary. It's usually tied to some present experience that, we, that we're going through. It's good to be happy. There's nothing wrong with happiness. I, I like being happy, but yet it is a, a passing thing. Joy is something that lasts. What's more than that, in John chapter 15, we see that Jesus prayed for his followers to be able to actually have joy. It's something that Jesus wants his followers to have. In John 15, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christians are allowed to be joyful. If you think of Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and, and the rest of them. Joy is a product of um, God, the spirit living in the life of a believer, and it's produced through God in that person. When I think of the word joy, there are three words that, that come to mind. Um, joy is um, being uh, content, hopeful, and trusting in the God who has arranged the life that we are living. There's contentedness in it. There's trusting and there's hope. We, we are to be content. Solomon calls us to be content because we recognize that we have what God wants us to have. We are to trust him because we recognize that he is the one who has laid out the path of our life and whatever season it is that we find us in, find ourselves in, he's the one who's in control of that. And then we are to hope knowing that even as we see at the end of verse 14, God is going to bring everything into a righteous judgment. Uh, one uh, evangelical dictionary mentions that joy is a delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. It's a, a delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pain or pleasure. Joy is something that sticks around regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, uh, no matter what it is that we're going through here, here in this life. So it's a combination of being content, trusting, hopeful. It's a delight in life that runs deeper than pain and pleasure. But notice here uh, also that Solomon contrasts what God has provided, the fact that we don't have to go through life alone, that he's given us words, he contrasts what God has provided with the alternative, and that's man's provision. In verse 12, beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is weariness to the body. Now, he's not saying that books in and of themselves are bad. Uh, books are good. Good books even better. 
But ultimately, when we're trying to answer the questions of life, you know, what's going on here? What's the purpose in all of this? Books can only get us so far. Uh, if we want the ultimate answers that we need, a good book will, will point us back to the Bible uh, as the source of the information that we're looking for. Uh, books can't answer all the questions we're looking for, but notice that Solomon likens the words of Scripture to well-driven nails. Well-driven nails. Uh, the, the words of Scripture are those things that we can anchor our life to, that no matter what's going on, we have a sure and steady place to go to, to know that we will find a right way to be able to interpret what's going on in life. And we need to stick to those wise anchors because they can't be moved. But notice also that they are like, uh, he likens them to goads or sticks that drive people along because sometimes these memorable words can be painful. Uh, there are times when God's words, when God's words from God's word confront us in life and we realize that we're being convicted of some sin. And that, that, that's painful to have to say, I'm sorry, or to, or to confess some sin. So the, the words of the shepherd are good, but at times they are painful because they turn us from our sin. But that's good and necessary. And I believe, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I do believe that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes sometime after he had been visited by God that third time and told that the kingdom would be taken from his son, obviously before he died. It finally is sinking in that what he has done has led him to this point. He's looking back over his life and leaving these words for us to tell us what he did and how it is that we can look at the life that we're going through and maybe make some differences other than what he did. But it's only these words of the one true shepherd that are sometimes painful, always secure that we can hang our, hang our lives onto that will bring us to that point. Um, on the, the front of the bulletin, again, I, one of the passages I was going to look at at this point in the sermon is there at Psalm 1, 1 through 3. And again, it's a reminder of the influence that David had on his son Solomon. This is where you know Solomon would have heard this from his father David. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. The benefit of that is that he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So there's those nails, those, those firm pegs that can be gra grasped onto. David uses the picture of a firmly planted tree. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and whatsoever he does will prosper. And so, yes, life is a puzzle. At times it can be a frustrating and difficult puzzle, but we haven't been left uh, to go through it on our own. Uh, God's word is the place that helps to uh, adjust our minds to properly think about the kinds of testings and difficulties and temptations that we go through. Uh, someone this morning, and I can't remember who called me uh, J.C. Ryle when I walked in. I can't remember who that was. I actually had a quote from Ryle here. So as he called me that, I, I was I was thinking I was thinking of this coming up, but so uh, J.C. Ryle once said, "By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we would never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness, our weakness. He draws us to the throne of grace. He purifies our affections. He weans us from the world and makes us long for heaven." And the only way he could have that perspective on life, the only way we can have that perspective on life is being tied to the sure words of God that we find in his scripture so that as the world that is around us that is chaotic and moving us this way away from those words, uh, we can be tied to that which is moving us away from the way in which that stream is going. Uh, so God hasn't left us to go um, through life on our own. And the third uh, idea that Solomon brings us to and the one that he concludes with is the fact that God is in charge. Verses 13 through 14, we see that God is in charge of everything. We're not. Again, there's that concept of limitations and turning to the one who is limitless. Look at verse 13. The, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. God is the one who in his wisdom and power has perfectly designed the life that he has planned out for each one of us. 
there's no point at any in any of our lives that we can go along and um, and it's outside of the perfect plan of God. There's no area in all of space, anywhere in all of time or history where even the smallest molecule can be said to be independent of God. It's all under his power and control. You know, man's largest telescopes still can't look beyond the end of the universe. We don't even can't even fathom what that might look like. We can't even get a, you know, a person to Mars and back. You know, we have to. Uh, we have to look around Mars with, with, a, with a robot, but in all of this looking and all of this searching, we're never going to be able to find something that is outside the control of God. And that is why he is worthy of all respect, awe, and adoration, all respect, awe, and adoration. And I think those three words kind of capture the idea of what Solomon is talking about when he refers to the fear of God. Just like with joy, there was those three words I referred to. The three words that I think of when I think of the fear of God are awe, respect, and adoration. And if you're a child of God, then when we think about the fear of God, it doesn't mean that we're to be afraid of God. We're able to call him our father. Uh, in the uh, disciples' prayer, when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he starts off with our father who art in heaven. That is the cry of all who have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're all able to look to him as our father. We do have to remember, though, that we are not him and he is not us. He's the creator and we are the creation. It's through that awe, reverence, and respect that we as his children are motivated to love and obey him. Ultimately, fearing God means living life on his terms within the boundaries that he's established. If you've played on a sports team, you recognize the idea of inbounds and out of bounds. If you're playing soccer or volleyball, basketball, football, and you try to take the ball out of bounds, obviously it's taken away from you and given to the other team, depending on which game it is and where you are in the game, but we won't get that technical. All right. Uh, the fear of God is living life within the bounds that he has established. And the first step in living within the bounds that he has established is coming to God through faith in Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf. This isn't a, a, an exhortation. This isn't an encouragement to people to try to fear God on their own. It's an, it, it's a, it is a call to come to God in the way in which he says we are supposed to come. One author, David Gibson, says, Fearing the Lord and remembering our creator makes us wise because it teaches us to live on our knees. It humbles us as the creature and exalts God as the creator who knows what is best. And really, all through life, God is working to teach his children that very fact that he's God, he's the creator, and we're not him. And we have to trust him through all of those different things that he takes us through to, to get us to learn it. Took a long time in Solomon's life, takes a long time in our lives too, possibly all the way up. Well, it will be all the way up until we become perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. This idea is taught also in Philippians chapter four, Paul's letter, his ode to joy. Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. How is it that in trials and difficulties and not being able to see the end of a path that we can be anxious in nothing? By everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds again in Christ Jesus. And so we see the, the combination of fear and joy when we recognize who God is, what he's done, that he is the one who is actually producing joy in the life of his children so that we can look at the life that, we've, that, that he has established for us to live in and look at that life with, with thankfulness, with trust, with hope and contentedness. Uh, Solomon in these two verses points out for us again, who God is and what he does, what makes him worthy of being in charge of everything, what makes him uh, to be the one who is in control of everything. Uh, at, at, at the beginning of the, the chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse one, he calls God the creator. 
And in recognizing God as our creator, it is important that we never move away from that truth. We can never give up on the fact that God is the one who created everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is one of those firmly fixed nails that we can never move away from. We can't give up the fact that God in his power is the one who's responsible for this whole world being there. And as such, we see in, um, in verse 13 that we are to keep his commandments because he is the one lawgiver. He is the one who has given the rules that we are to live by, the one who has made the boundaries that we are to live in. And then also he is the final judge. He is the one who is going to set everything right in the end. In Hebrews, it says it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, the only way that we're ready for that judgment is by coming to God on his terms. And the only way we come to God on his terms is by coming through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But it's not just who God is that Solomon ties our minds and our attention to. It's also what he does. Notice there at the end of verse 14, that God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, which is both good and evil. God sees everything. He knows everything. There's nothing, there's nowhere that we can run to that we would be able to hide from him. And those words are both comfort and motivation uh, to stay away from evil and move to, to that which is good. Sometimes as Solomon is referred to, the good don't get what they rightly deserve. Those who are doing evil don't get what they rightly deserve, but because God is the one who sees everything, he is the one who is going to set everything right in the end. God will bring every act into judgment. He doesn't call us to be that final judge. He's the one who has the power to do it, and we are to, to trust him. Even in the difficult times of life when we know that someone is getting away with something wrong, but there's just there's nothing we can do about it other than, as Philippians 4 says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so Solomon is working to reorient our minds around the fact that God is unlimited we are limited. He does that by all throughout the book, showing that he recognizes that life is a puzzle. And at times it can be a difficult and frustrating puzzle, but we're not called to go. We're not called to go through this kind of life, this life on our own. God has given us um, anchors that we can hold our life, that we can anchor our lives to that's found in his word. As his children, he drives us down the path that he wants us to go on as a loving father. And then in the end, we come to recognize that God is in the one, God is the one who is in charge of everything because of who he is and what he has done. And as he helps us to recognize that, we are able to, to have the kind of lasting joy in this life that, that, that we're all longing to have. Uh, it's, it's not happiness. It's rather an ability to recognize that where God has placed us is the, the best place, the place that God wants us. And he's given us everything that we need for that place that he has put us at the time in which he has placed us. And through that kind of a confidence in God, we can, we can, we can go through life in a way that pleases him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are alive. You never need to rest. You never sleep. You never need to get any of your strength back because you've never lost any of it. I praise you that you are that kind of God, and I thank you that there is no other God like that. You are the one true God. And so we've come to you this morning. We've looked in your word. I ask that you would continue to help us to understand it. Thank you that you enable your children to be able to obey it. I'd ask for your help in that uh, today and throughout the rest of this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.